It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Let me start this week's Tortoise podcast with some big numbers. In 2003, there were 121 million passengers flying every year to and from America. 121 million. In 2018, that number had grown to 233 million passengers. That's nearly double. But if that sounds like a mammoth increase, wait until you hear the numbers from China. In 2003, China had 6.8 million passengers traveling internationally by plane. And today, it has 10 times as many, at 63.7 million. Good news for a virus, right? I haven't just plucked 2003 from nowhere. 2003 is a significant year. It's the last time that the world faced an epidemic of the kind that we're facing today with the spread of coronavirus. And if you've been living in a bunker, this is what you need to know. Coronavirus has jumped from animals to humans and is now passing between humans. We know that it's reached every continent on Earth and millions of people are now quarantined in China. But we've been here before. I'm Basha Cummings and on this week's Tortoise podcast, we're taking a step back from the torrent of viral headlines to tell you the story of one man's heroic battle to halt a deadly epidemic. And we're looking at what it tells us about how we might hope to contain coronavirus today. But first up, allow me a brief segue into the world of Google search. Another massive thing that has changed since 2003, it's a big one, it's the internet. And because our Google searches are a handy mirror into our anxieties and our fears, I asked Ella Hollowood, a data journalist at Tortoise, to do a bit of digging and to give us a sense of how we as a public are reacting to the news. Hi, Ella. Hiya. Welcome. Okay, so you've been digging into this. Tell me how coronavirus is playing out in the world of search. What are people frantically looking up on Google? Most of the time, it's the sort of things you might expect. So words like China, Wuhan and virus come up a lot. Um, But there are some differences between different places. It was striking that in America, people are asking what is coronavirus and wanting to know how deadly this disease is. Whereas um, in European countries like the UK and France, people tend to be more concerned about the symptoms and how the virus is transmitted, maybe because people have colds around this time of year as well. Yeah. Okay, if we think of Google search as a kind of as a mirror to what we are freaking out about as a global population, when did people sort of start to get interested in coronavirus? When did they start searching for it? 
It was actually quite late in some ways. Um, it was three weeks after the World Health Organization first became aware of the cases of pneumonia. Um, so around the 20th of January, that's when we really start to see search interest beginning. And then it rapidly accelerates around the 23rd of January. And that's a real kind of turning point for global search interest. And where did the sort of interest first kick off? The countries that started to search for the virus tend to be those closest to China, which isn't that surprising. Yeah. The one with the earliest was Macau. There are some searches as early as the 2nd of January appearing, sort of bubbling under the surface, but it too sort of peaks in its search interest later on. Thanks, Ella. Thank you. But now let's rewind. November 2002, a man becomes ill in China. He was patient zero, the first to show symptoms of a new and particularly aggressive strain of severe acute respiratory syndrome, what we later called SARS. By February of 2003, just three months later, the virus was spreading across southern China. And that's when Carlo Urbani, an Italian doctor working for the World Health Organization in Vietnam, was told about a mystery illness breaking out in a hospital in Hanoi. It was, it turned out, the same illness that had killed patient zero. But now it was spreading internationally. And what Dr. Urbani did next was heroic, and it saved probably thousands of lives. So to tell me more about what Dr. Urbani did and why it was so important, I spoke to Jeremy Farah, one of the world's leading experts in infectious diseases and who's now director of the Wellcome Trust, which funds research in science and health. Now, Jeremy really knows his stuff. He was, during the SARS outbreak, based in Ho Chi Minh City, researching for Oxford University's clinical research unit. And he was good friends with Dr. Urbani. After SARS, Jeremy and a colleague of his identified the re-emergence of a deadly bird flu, or H5N1, in humans. So I sat down with him in his office. So 2002 in Vietnam was, was, a, was a great time in Vietnam. Vietnam had had obviously been through two wars, effectively, the, the French period and then the American War or Vietnamese War. But by 2002, the country was really thriving and a lot of investment in education and in health. And we were part of a research unit based in Ho Chi Minh City in the south of the country. Uh, Carlo Urbani was a parasitologist uh, working for the World Health Organization. He is Italian. He had previously been working for the uh, for Médecins Sans Frontières in Cambodia, and then switched to working for the WHO. In fact, he 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 received the uh, MSF Nobel Prize um, on behalf of MSF because he was at that time the head of the Italian section of MSF. And he moved to Cambodia with his family, and and then he moved to Vietnam. And I knew him during his time in Cambodia, and also his time after he moved to Vietnam, because we did we had obviously a lot of interactions with WHO in Vietnam, and also the work he was doing on malaria, something that we were doing a lot of. So we saw a lot of him professionally and, and, and personally. So we now know the first case of SARS happened in November 2002, but it wasn't until February 2003 that things started to go notably wrong. The hospital in Hanoi gets a patient and they don't know what's wrong with them. They call in Carlo. What happened? Right. Everything happens in Vietnam that's bad at February because it's Vietnamese New Year and everyone's on holiday. And, and that, you know, that's why the Tet Offensive of 1968 was done, because 
the northern Vietnamese forces thought the south would all be on holiday or, or drunk. So everything always happens at Tet. He was working in Hanoi, in the north of Vietnam, and he noticed, he was called to see somebody in the hospital in Hanoi, and he saw the patient and examined the patient and also realized that around the patient there were nurses and doctors who were getting sick. He visited the patient two or three times uh, and noticed that actually some of the nurses had, were off sick and, and some of the doctors were off sick. And very quickly, over the space of about two days, he put those things together and uh, raised the alarm to the authorities in Hanoi that there was... So was that, is that not normal Usually, you don't usually see health workers getting sick so quickly. Is that what was out? No, you, 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 healthcare, healthcare workers shouldn't get sick from their patients. Um, and with somebody with a respiratory infection, an infection of the lungs, uh, pneumonia, they shouldn't be passing that on to nurses and doctors in a hospital. And all of us who, I suppose, work in this field of infectious diseases and global health, if you see a patient and then a cluster of lung disease, respiratory pneumonia, in their family or in a hospital. It's just ingrained in all of us that that's a big, big red flag. I mean, it shouldn't happen. So he identifies this red flag. There's a patient, I think it was an American businessman, Correct. and the, the health workers around him start getting sick. How does he, what does he do next? How does he realise that this is something genuinely very serious? So Carlo was terrified I remember him phoning me up from the hospital and saying, what should I do? And said, there's something unusual happening. There's, we've got a patient, an American business person. He's got a very, very aggressive uh, infection. It's progressing very quickly. But I'm worried because I, there's a couple of nurses off and they were looking after him. And he was a parasitologist, a very good clinician, but, but he wasn't seeing patients at that time. He was um, work, then at that time working at the WHO. So he just wanted somebody else to talk to when he wasn't quite sure what to do. And because we knew each other, we, we spoke regularly. He phoned up in, yeah, it must have been February uh, 2003. And what did you tell him? Be careful. <laughs> and take care of yourself because, you know, that, that's a very worrying story. We talked about many things. I mean, he was at this stage, he wasn't sick. I mean, he was, you know, perfectly well at this stage. But it, it was it was clear that he had to somehow make sure that infection control in the hospital was critical. Infection control in some Vietnamese hospitals in 2002 wasn't great. And so, you know, it was critical that the nurses and doctors and him himself who were looking after that patient had some protection for themselves because, you know, no healthcare worker should get sick and no healthcare worker should die. But they frequently do because infection control is not good enough. So infection control was the critical first thing and that the doctors uh, wore masks, that the patient was isolated. As few people as possible came in contact with the patient and he was treated in, in sensible ways. So he did all of that uh, and that he should immediately, without waiting for another case or waiting for those nurses to come back in when they were really sick, he should report this to the National um, Institute of Hygiene and Epidemiology, the public health authorities in Hanoi. And did he, was the term SARS, was it around? Did he no. know to call it that? No. Or was that later? I, I don't know when the word SARS was first used. Um, at the beginning, he, he, was just, he, he was just talking about a very severe pneumonia. And there was no name for it at that stage. And of course, we didn't know what was causing it at that stage. SARS, again, like this coronavirus in China and the world today, this SARS had never been seen in humans before. It was another animal virus 
coming across into humans and being then transmissible to, to humans. It, 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 there'd be no patient in, of, with SARS prior to November 2002. So he's called you, he's alerted the authorities, and what was it about this patient that had caused such alarm? So the patient was slightly unusual. It, it, yes, he was an American business person, but the, the, the illness came on very quickly and progressed very quickly. Now, that can happen, but it's also relatively unusual. And so, you know, Carlo was a good clinician. And those, those, all of those things in sequence, he was able to put together, and not everybody would have done, he was able to put together, something's wrong here. And so he persuaded the authorities in Hanoi to effectively uh, quarantine the hospital. And uh, to the point, actually, that, that uh, no new patients were able to come in and no patients could go out. Was that a difficult thing to do, to convince them? Yeah, that's, that, it, it, I mean, he was hugely respected in the country, so his, his uh, voice carried great weight. But nevertheless, you're, it's a huge ethical and moral dilemma uh, when you effectively, it wasn't obviously 100%, you could never do anything 100%, but he effectively quarantined the hospital and effectively no new people came in and no people left until this was resolved. And in, and in doing so, that action actually meant that the SARS for Vietnam was completely contained in that one episode. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. So there were no more SARS cases in the country because of that. Yeah. And therefore, he effectively saved a country from what would have been, given the, the health situation and the economic development at that stage in Vietnam, would have been absolutely devastating in Vietnam. You'd have seen the same in Vietnam or worse than there was seen in China. So he effectively saved the country from what would have been a devastating uh, epidemic. Well, yesterday it was California. Today, Brazil and Israel reported suspected cases of the deadly strain of pneumonia, which is proving to be one of the worst outbreaks of infectious disease in decades, with 78 deaths so far. And the WHO at that time, and in response to Carlos making everybody aware of this, then acted very, very swiftly. And then it became clear, as these things often do, that actually it wasn't just Hanoi that actually there were similar things happening in Hong Kong, that nobody had done what Carlo did and 
put two and two together. And eventually, too late, but eventually that appreciation that that was also happening in southern China. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then when obviously the story became out, it became clear that actually this had been going on for considerable months before that. Mm-hmm. And, and undoubtedly, the decisions that are made in Carlo's case made a difference to a country of 80 million people and actually a world as well, because had he not made that alert, I think it would have been another six months into it and the world would have had a much worse uh, epidemic. Um, and in the process, tragically lost his own life. I want us today to remember Dr. Carlo Urbani. Dr. Urbani contracted SARS while treating his infected patients in Hanoi, and it was on March the 11th, 2003, after he flew to a conference in Bangkok in Thailand, that he started to feel feverish and was soon hospitalised. And he died 18 days later in intensive care. This is his son, Tommaso, talking about his death to the BBC. He was my father and I saw him as a strong person and strong doctor, so I, I thought he was like invincible or something like that. So I was optimistic until the end, until that 29th of March, when I received the news from my mother that my father was dead. So uh, I still remember that morning as it was yesterday. Even after 10 years, people still want to remember my father and the work he did because he, he managed to discover this new disease and launch the alarm. And the protocol used in that time is still used nowadays to prevent and to fight the spread of new diseases. So if what Carlo Urbani did in Vietnam is an example of a, of a, of a process gone right, that he managed to stop what could have been a huge tragedy, can you tell me about a, an example of where it's gone wrong, where a, where a virus or something incredibly contagious has not been contained in the same way and what we can learn from it as we see all these headlines now about coronavirus. Yeah. So I think, actually, sadly, there are many examples. And I, and I think if we just think back in the, in the last 20 years, don't have to go back to ancient history of, of uh, 1918. Mm. We can go back to our own careers. And, you know, I think the early, the early period of SARS, which would have been the last six months of 2002 and the early months of 2003, clearly, at, at, in those months, public health and clinical medicine in China was not what it is today. And it certainly was very basic. Uh, the sharing of information at that time was very poor. And so this infection in southern China was allowed to get out of control uh, to the point that in the end, 8,000 people had SARS and, and about 800 people died. That could have been avoided. If everybody had done what Carlo had done in southern China, we would not have had a global problem of SARS. So that the actions that you take, the decisions you make, and the way you deal with it makes a difference. Along a deserted road in central Malaysia, the stench of death hangs over two small farming villages. 80 people from this village alone are dead. One family in every three has lost a loved one. There have been other cases. In 1999 in Malaysia, there was an outbreak again of an animal virus for the first time coming across 
to humans. This was called Nipah virus, spread between pigs, but also by bats. And bats come up regularly in all of these epidemics. And decisions were made under a bit of pressure from the world and from the Malaysian authorities to get to an answer quickly and do something about it. Sadly, the, the evidence they had was wrong, and they took some wrong decisions. They thought that this outbreak, which affected people's brains and caused an inflammation of the brain, and quite a significant number of people died, they thought this was being caused by a virus called Japanese encephalitis, which is endemic in Southeast Asia. And so they made a decision to start vaccinating pigs for Japanese encephalitis. Unfortunately, they used the same needle as they were going from pig to pig and region to region, and therefore they, this infection spread more widely in Malaysia than it needed to have done, and more people got infected, and there were cases in Singapore, and the epidemic became much bigger than it needed to be, and in fact, subsequently, it's become endemic in Bangladesh and has caused outbreaks in India. So, so that's an example where, unfortunately, the pressure to come to decisions and perhaps not making the right decision led you to something which made the public health situation mm -hmm. worse. Mm -hmm. And for me, the lesson in that is just take a little bit more time to make sure you're as sure as you can be and then make the right decisions. And do you think that that's happening now with coronavirus? Do you think that that pause is happening? So we've moved a lot in 20 years. Uh, and a lot of new organisations have been established, mm. uh, CEPI and other things to try and combat this, so we're in favour. The, the coronavirus outbreak now in, South, in China and now global is, is unprecedented. Uh, we're in the middle of it at the moment. It, there's tremendous uncertainty again, and we're all having to make decisions now without complete data and information, and we're trying to make the right decisions and do the right things. And is that, sorry to, to cut you off, but is, is that a symptom of it happening in China, which is a different kind of government operating differently than if it had broken out in a, let's say, democracy? I the Chinese president, Hu Jintao, has ordered officials around the country to be more open about the extent of the SARS virus. The flu-like disease has now spread to at least 26 countries. Worldwide, nearly 200 people have died. The World Health Organization, which has criticized China for withholding information about the SARS virus, is expected to send a team of epidemiologists to Shanghai on Monday. I have not witnessed since the beginning, since since the last few days of the last uh, December through till now, which is about a month now, and I, having been very close to it, I've I've not witnessed any withholding of information. Uh, and I, I appreciate there's an easy narrative, particularly when it's China, and particularly with going back to SARS. But I worked with people in China during SARS, and I've worked with a completely different group of people now in China, and the difference is huge. The, 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 the system is now in place and functioning. The people leading that are a different generation. Uh, they've often been trained extensively in China and internationally. They know the right things to do. I think more, much more than that, what we're seeing is, is the chaos and fear and challenge of dealing with nature when it overwhelms you. What is happening behind the scenes right now in governments where there is an outbreak? Are they, you know, are they working on vaccines? Are they testing like mad? What, what is what is happening that we as a public cannot see to try and contain this? <laughs> well, you you probably see news pictures of what's happening in China. In the in, I'm not sure ever in history actually. Even, actually, probably going back to the Middle Ages when cities and towns were formed with walls around them because of the Black Death because of plague. That's what. That's why cities and villages have got city walls, 
because they were built around plague in the Middle Ages to stop nasty people with plague coming into the village in the city. Mm. What we're seeing in China is a sort of repeat of that. Wuhan is a city of 11 million people, uh, and it's essentially in a lockdown now. Public gatherings are, uh, are banned. Public transport is at a minimal, if at all. Schools are closed, and the city is essentially in lockdown. And that is actually being done to varying degrees, uh, at least in 10 other cities today. That, that's an extraordinary measure. I, I, I'm not aware, other than in 1918, that's ever been done before. Um, behind the scenes, there is obviously an enormous amount have been going on around the clock since the since the 1st of January or the, or the 2nd or 3rd of January. And that is trying to work out what the cause was. Um, incredible that that was worked out within a few days, actually. Wuhan was able to say, we've got a problem. You know, I often think if you had 30 or 40 people with an unusual pneumonia in London distributed across, let's say, 10 different hospitals, would we in London notice that was happening? I don't know. So that's a tribute, I think, to the clinicians and uh, public health people in, in Wuhan. With SARS, I was, I was only infectious. In other words, I could pass it to you when I had symptoms. Mm-hmm. That meant that if Carlo saw a patient with symptoms and he isolated that patient, and uh, he could stop it. And that's why we were able to bring SARS under control in six months. With influenza, and it seems with this novel coronavirus, you're infectious very early in your after getting infected. And so I could have a sore throat today or a mild cough and think nothing of it, but I could be coughing over you and you could get it. In that scenario, it's almost impossible to bring it under control. Yikes. And then what you need to do is do what you can to reduce the chances of it happening. So reducing public transport, reducing mass gatherings, uh, working from home when you can, maybe closing schools, just to try and reduce the transmission. And that can be very, very effective. In 1918, in uh, Philadelphia and St. Louis in the United States, one city did it and one didn't, and the epidemic curve looked very different, right. the number of people. So it does have an impact. But you can't stop the epidemic. If I pass it to two or three people and I'm infectious, at the time I just get symptoms, very mild, it's extraordinarily difficult to bring it under control. Mm-hmm. And we have no specific treatment, and we have, we have no vaccine. So there's enormous amounts of work to try and work out all of that, and desperate attempts to work out is the virus evolving, desperate attempts to try and produce drugs that would save lives, and desperate, urgent attempts to make a vaccine. So it's critical that all those things are done, not in sequence, Not that we do one thing, then we do the other, then we do the other, but different groups around the world do all of those in parallel together. Great. Thank you very much. At Tortoise, we're trying to do journalism differently and build a slower, wiser type of newsroom. Quality journalism doesn't come for free, though, so we depend on our members to fund our reporting. And if you're enjoying the podcast, the best way to support us is to join us. If you're an iOS user, download the app from the App Store and get the first 30 days free or otherwise visit our website, tortoisemedia.com, before the end of January and you can join us for half price. Hi, I'm Gemma Ware, host of The Conversation Weekly podcast. Each week, I get to speak to some of the smartest people in the world as they connect their new research to the biggest news and issues of today. 
You'll get a bit of everything from how women are changing North Korea to the emerging science of interoception, our sixth sense, to the importance of intellectual humility. Follow The Conversation Weekly for new episodes every Thursday and read more stories direct from academic experts every day on theconversation.com.